welcome everyone to Colored Red, a podcast all about Colorado true crime. What a few days. I'm recording this much later than I thought I would be, but you know, but don't worry. I'll keep them coming. Um, October was actually the three-year anniversary for Colored Red, and um, I can't really believe it's been that long. I started this podcast for fun, and it's still just for fun. I never wanted to like profit off of it in any significant way or make it about myself, which is why I'm pretty reclusive about myself. Um, I just wanted to showcase research and some cases that haven't been heard of among the many, many crazy, crazy cases that Colorado has. Um, I love to talk about Colorado history and the state that I love. And I think I have maintained that for the past three years. I want to just thank all my listeners now for sticking around and listening and sharing their stories with me over the years. So thank you, everybody. Today's case is one that I've been poking around with um, for a long time now, trying to decide when exactly to cover it. I used the book called The Death of an Heir by Philip Jett, and there's also a Forensic Files episode about this case called Bitter Brew. This case is a little bit creepier than I initially thought it might be, and there's a little bit of a small urban legend associated with it, and it involves a name that everyone in Colorado certainly knows, and that most people in America or even the world probably know, and that is Coors. The Coors Brewery was founded in Golden, Colorado in 1873, by German immigrants Adolf Coors and Jacob Schuler with um, an initial investment of just $20,000 combined. They purchased a Pilsner-style beer recipe from a Czech immigrant, and they began operations. And as we all know, Coors beer ended up becoming one of the most popular macro brews in the U.S., though it has been declining in popularity in recent years because people have a lot of choices these days. The factory and company and Coors family um, hasn't been without turmoil or controversy over those years. Adolf Coors I had a son named Adolf Coors II, and he ended up going by Joseph Coors or Joe because for reasons that I don't really need to explain, the name Adolf really started to go out of style around the early 1900s. Um, In the 60s and 70s, Joseph Coors was involved in some uh, racist dealings in which the Coors factory was accused of having discriminatory hiring practices that went against hiring specifically Hispanics, African-Americans, women, gays, and lesbians. And Joseph Coors supported a lot of conservative organizations that people took issue with. And several Hispanic former employees came out to say that they felt they were terminated because of their race. And the Hispanic community actually launched this massive, massive boycott of Coors beers for a very long time. And uh, you can see t-shirts and boycott materials at the Colorado History Museum for this whole boycott and this movement that started up. Uh, I'm not sure if the Colorado History Museum is open, but I do recommend that everybody go there. There's a ton of stuff there about Colorado that I didn't even know about myself. So one of the weird hiring practices that employees took issue with in Coors was the fact that potential employees were subjected to a polygraph test, among several other tests and checks, 
And this was a policy that was started following the attempted kidnapping of Joseph Coors that was thwarted and the kidnapping of Charles Betcher II. Um, he was the son of the wealthiest man in Colorado, and I'm sure you've seen the name Betcher around different scholarships and other programs in Colorado. It's the same family. And um, he was kidnapped in 1933, and he was held for two weeks until being released for ransom. But the weird policy mostly stems from the case that is the subject of today's episode, the kidnapping and murder of Joseph Coors' son, Adolf Coors III, who was kidnapped and murdered in 1960. So let's jump right on into it. Adolf Coors III went by Ad, again, because of the unpopularity of the Adolf name, but they do end up keeping that name in the family, probably because it's not really an uncommon German name. So in 1960, Ad was the chairman of the Coors Company, but he actually didn't have um, currently in his own possession any shares in the company yet because his father still had control of the company. And Ad was really only paid a nice but not really heir to the company level nice salary. And Ad had always been really quiet and non-confrontational, especially with his dad. And he didn't believe in dinner table chit-chat or small talk. He kind of just floated along as wealthy sons who are heir to a fortune usually do. And he basically just accepted his, his role as the chairman of the Coors Company. So a couple of days before February 9th, 1960, um, they, were, they were really snowy and frigid days. And inside an apartment in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Denver, a small little studio rented for just $74 a month. Um, the faint but distinct sounds of a typewriter could be heard echoing from the mostly bare residents. A man uh, burst forth from this apartment carrying supplies covered by a blanket to a car parked several blocks away from the apartment building. He loaded the car with a gun, handcuffs, leg ties, as well as camping gear like a lantern and tent. And he slammed the trunk down and wiped sweat from his brow and he returned to his apartment to continue typing a note that would go down in Colorado history. On the morning of February 9th, Ad Coors himself drove his own car, a white and turquoise harvester travel-all, to the brewery from his home that was about 10 miles away. The home was on a large plot of land, and it had this wonderful view of Pikes Peak, but it wasn't really anything super extravagant that would indicate that the family were millionaires. Acres and acres of Dakota red sandstone surrounded this rich redwood of the home, and it had dark exterior features. In fact, the Coors family um, lived a higher end but seemingly middle-class lifestyle to the public eye in terms of fashion and cars and homes, but the Coors family brothers did belong to a number of very expensive country clubs, and that's really one of the only areas where they differed from their kind of plain lifestyles. Uh, the brothers all owned reasonably modest homes, um, but they didn't really have bodyguards or chauffeurs or even private schools for their children, and the Coors family really just enjoyed blending in. Coors awoke that morning of February 9th, and he went through his daily exercise regimen, which he did before sunrise. In fact, he was a very fit man. He was an avid skier, an avid hunter, basically Mr. Colorado in all regards. 
He then showered and he had breakfast with his family, wife Mary, and four children, 18-year-old Brooke, 16-year-old Cecily, Adolf IV, and they just called him Spike, and he was 14, and James, who was 10 years old. Cecily had actually pointed out a yellow sedan that um, was parked on a public road visible from the home. And she had noticed this car several times before seemingly stalking out the house. And when Coors went to try to talk to the person in the car, they usually sped off and then weren't seen again for a while until the car would inevitably park there again. But on February 9th, there was no yellow car by the house and Ad left home around 8 a.m. in good spirits wearing his usual casual uh, windbreaker jacket, baseball cap, and creased pants with a collared shirt. But that morning, he never showed up to the brewery. Later that morning, a milkman discovered his car, and it was abandoned on the wooden one-lane Turkey Creek Bridge. The car was still running, and the windows were down, and the radio was still on, and Ad was nowhere to be found. Investigators arrived and walked around the area and found a large blood stain in the dirt near the bridge. Somehow, a very astute investigator found a lens from a pair of Ad's eyeglasses in the river, like he just spotted it from the bridge. And they also found a baseball cap and brown fedora that looked like they had been dropped or tossed out of the car or something of that nature. Nearby, Ad's wife, Mary, sat in the car watching all of these investigators mull over the scene and Ad's father returned to the car to tell her that they found blood and his hat and glasses. And they drove home in silence, wondering what had happened to Ad. People who lived near the bridge reported that they had possibly heard some gunshots, but they hadn't been sure. They had kind of learned to tune out gunshots over the years because it was an area that people hunted in fairly frequently, and it was a different time. People casually hunting small game in the area wasn't really unusual. But Ad didn't return or surface, and the police put out an all-points bulletin for his whereabouts. Um, The police then worked around the clock and launched what would become one of the largest manhunts and cases in American history, a case that would span thousands of miles. Meanwhile, across in town in Denver, Colorado, the camping gear and handcuffs and supplies were being dumped by the man in the Capitol apartment. He hid in his apartment for around a day and then disappeared, taking everything with him, which wasn't much. His plans had been botched, but what those plans were had yet to be discovered by the police. The kidnapping of Adolf Coors III was all over the radio and already in the papers, and he knew that he had to get out of town and ditch evidence. But this was 1960. It would all take time. He spent his day pacing around the apartment, as noticed by neighbors in their later accounts, and he said he contemplated suicide. He cleaned the entire apartment top to bottom, trying to basically wipe away fingerprints from every possible surface that he could have touched. And the next morning, Mary Coors, Ad's wife, um, in the midst of sitting with detectives and describing the strange yellow car they had seen parked on the road, uh, she received a letter in the mail, and it was typed on a typewriter, and it said, Mrs. Coors, your husband has been kidnapped. His car is by Turkey Creek. Call the police or FBI. He dies. Cooperation. He lives. Ransom. $200,000 and tens 
and $300,000 in 20s. There will be no negotiating. The letter described that the kidnapper wanted the bills to be used, non-consecutive, unrecorded, and unmarked. It also told instructions for what to do with the money. It said to place the money and the letter and the envelope in a suitcase or bag and have two men with a car ready to make the delivery. Advertise in section section 69 of the Denver Post for a tractor for sale at King Ranch in Fort Lupton and then wait at NA9-4455 for instructions after the ad has been placed. And I assume that that weird number is just a frequency or something to set a ham radio or phone to. I'm not really sure what that is. I actually Googled it, but I can't really find out what that is. Deliver the money immediately when receiving a call, and any delay would be considered stalling. The call would supposedly tell Mrs. Coors and the two men where to go with the money. The letter went on to say that all they wanted was the money and that they didn't want to murder anyone, and that ad would be released 48 hours after the money was received. And the family got the money together immediately, and it would be roughly $4.2 million in today's money. The Coors family was quite rich by this time, so they got all this cash together and waited and waited, and the call never came. The FBI immediately took over the investigation because it was only a short time before this that kidnapping of anyone at any age was made a federal offense. And curiously, as I stated before, a few decades prior, the FBI had notified the Coors family that there was an interrupted attempt to kidnap Adolf Coors II Ad's dad. So the family was a target and they were millionaires and they were willing to pay really anything to get him back. But the kidnapper never contacted the family ever again and they never requested the money. There was no phone call, nothing. They went completely silent. The FBI worked with what they had, which was no DNA because no such technology existed and they had some droplets of blood two hats, the pair of eyeglasses, and they also picked up some small metal fragments from around the bridge that would later turn out to not really be related to the case. So the FBI looked for clues in the only other item they had, which was the ransom note. Colorado is no stranger to really odd and revealing ransom notes. We're home to, in my opinion, the strangest ransom note of all time, the Jean Bonnet ransom note, and this note for the kidnapping of Alcor's kind of held its own secrets between the lines. The note was typed, as I said, and there was a double space after each period, which I guess was the way typing on a typewriter was taught in school, so the person was an experienced typist. There was not a single typo in the entire note. The typeface was made by a Swiss firm and was only used by two kinds of typewriter companies, so they concluded that the kidnapper used a Royal Light portable typewriter. It was sold in the late 1950s and widely sold, so finding the typewriter wouldn't be easy. But the typewriter had a little defect just in that one in particular. The S was slightly lower than the other letters, so if they thought they found their kidnapper or typewriter, they could look to see if it had that defect as well. Additionally, the type of stationery and envelope used was only sold by two stores in town, and they could possibly narrow down a search that way. The FBI then searched for leads, and several people around the area had seen this strange yellow car. 
almost haunting the scene leading up to the disappearance. It would appear here and it would appear there and it would be gone. And the man inside was really only ever a shadow. A witness near the bridge that morning who was guarding his mines saw a vehicle near the bridge and it was a yellow Mercury sedan. And the man remembered part of the license plate because he feared that the person in the car might be coming to uh, claim jump his mine. And by mines, I mean M-I-N-E-S. And I guess mine looting and illegal mining was going on in the area. He remembered AT-62, and there were four kinds of cars in Denver um, of that kind with that number on the plate. One of the cars was registered to a man named Walter Osborne, who bought the car a month earlier. When the FBI went to go visit him, the apartment was empty. He lived in the Cap Hill apartment complex that I believe is still standing because I recognize the look of this building. So the man who was living there had bailed. A woman who cleaned the apartment said she saw guns in it, and several residents said that um, somehow they had seen the guns as well whenever they walked by his door, something like that. And they asked the man in the apartment about them, and he told them that he used them for target shooting. And apparently he also just decorated his apartment with them because they were just this visible to everybody. A dumpster out back had boxes for handcuffs and leg restraints in it. So for Cap Hill, I might normally not say that this is anything to look twice at, but this was 1960. The fingerprints in the room matched the prints of a convicted killer named Joseph Corbett. And apparently he had not wiped down the fingerprints in there as well as he thought. He had shot a man in the head for what he said was self-defense, and he ended up escaping from prison. And I'll discuss this a little bit more in a bit. And he used the alias of Walter Osborne, among many others, to hold a job at the Benjamin Moore Paint Company in Denver. Co-workers there said that Joseph Corbett was weird and that he made weird comments, like, watch the newspapers for a big event and you won't see me anymore. And he hadn't shown up for work since the kidnapping. Neighbors also said that he typed in a typewriter late into the night. Corbett was, in fact, a loner of a man, which makes sense considering he was an escaped felon. When he was in college, his mother took a plunge from her high balcony off of of her home in Washington, and he came home to find her unconscious and mangled on top of a rod iron grate, of all things. She actually did not, hadn't died um, right then. She died later on in the hospital, and this incident really scarred him for life. Before and after it, though, he never really attended parties, and he didn't really have interest in anything other than reading and target shooting. In 1950, he murdered a man named Alan Lee Reed, a 22-year-old sergeant from Indiana. He dumped the body in Marin County in California, and oddly enough, it said that he actually left a three-mile trail of blood that led right to the site of the shooting. And he was arrested in Beverly Hills in a stolen car with a different gun on him and claimed the shooting was in self-defense even though the man was shot in the back. He pled guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to five years to life, but the sentence was later fixed at 10 years. His father seemed to take a caring and active role in his life, hiring psychiatrists to try to get to the bottom of his issues, and several psychiatrists wrote some notes about him, which I will now read. Joseph R. Corbett Jr. is markedly schizoid. He continually fails a social fitness test, says he admires Nietzsche, saying, 
Might makes right. Look at Nagasaki. The only thing that was important was the result of the bomb. He's a four-flusher or blowhard, always trying to impress others with his superiority, always thinking he's correct and those who disagree with him are wrong, always going back to college. The thing that makes him most dangerous is he habitually represses emotion, maintaining a placid appearance to those who see him, but if something breaks through that reserve, he can burst into violent, uncontrolled emotion. And another psychiatrist wrote, Corbett is a 22-year-old man convicted of murder second and referred for psychiatric examination because of the nature of his offense. He is a blonde young man, tall and thin. His behavior is entirely proper, includes the use of social graces, and reflects his background of adequate good breeding. The most noteworthy thing is his reserve. Though quite cooperative in giving facts about his family and himself, he is obviously in uncomfortable territory when asked to describe personality characteristics. His descriptions along this line all closely approach the concepts of normality. One would expect he has a tremendous need to maintain his internal equilibrium by avoiding the contemplation of even ordinary deviations, and that bringing up of emotional factors offers a great threat to him. The inadequacy of his personality in this respect is significant in relation to his crime. Excessive restraints against emotionality when broken down probably changed to violent, uncontrolled emotionality, the personality having no facilities for dealing with it. And some psychiatrists even got into his um, background when he was a child. One said that Joe was proficient at shoplifting when he was eight or nine years old. He always stole scientific goods, such as electrical switches from dime stores and laboratory equipment from the chemical laboratory at the University of Washington. And his mom worked there. He had a small chemical set in his basement and replenished his supply from the university. He took pride in his ability to evade apprehension. He was daring in his escapades, climbing up the vines on the outside of the buildings at the university and on the elevator cables between floors. A childhood friend of his said that when they were 12 or 13 years old, Joe said he wondered what it would be like to kill someone, and that was typical of Joe's interests in new and different things. He was a lone wolf type, and he went ahead with whatever he planned, even when everybody else backed out. As an adult, Joe really enjoyed exploring mines and ghost towns pretty much in his spare time. Undoubtedly, it was during this that he spotted a decent location for Coors body. He also found himself in what Death of an Heir describes as a different sort of prison because he needed to use an alias and he didn't have many skills. He worked dead-end jobs for low pay, but he was described as incredibly smart. He checked out all kinds of books from the library about various subjects like foreign languages, psychology, and philosophy. There's evidence that he planned a lot of various robberies and scams to try and amass money to leave the country forever. And his plan was to go to Australia. Among the other weird comments he said to co-workers, he sort of half-joked about robbing a local liquor store. He had successfully robbed a store in L.A. for $700 at one point, and he had tried to rob a gas station but couldn't break into the safe. Basically, Joe Corbett was desperate for money. So he was a very good suspect for everybody, and the FBI found 
two stores in Denver that sold the kind of typewriter used to write the ransom note. And they found out that Joe Corbett had purchased a typewriter of that kind in one of the stores. The FBI put out a bulletin for the car and 1,700 miles away, New Jersey police found the car in Atlantic City. The car had been doused with gas and burned in a trash dump. The car was registered to Walter Osborne. Under the car, there were a lot of deposits of soil, and the FBI took many, many samples from the undercarriage of the car, and they would end up going on and taking 457 samples in total of soil in this case. The oldest sample under the car was a really odd sample that included shale, and it matched the soil near the Turkey Creek Bridge. The soil also featured granite and feldspar, and in an unprecedented effort that was completely new for the FBI, they pretty much hit pavement all over Colorado State, and they took samples from all over the place, and they were trying to find out where the samples underneath his car were from, and they ended up actually narrowing down it to the area of Pikes Peak in Colorado. So this was the first time that soil samples had been used in a forensics case by the FBI. And like I said, they took 457 samples in total. Joe Corbett was meanwhile put on the FBI's most wanted list and Ad's family sat in turmoil. Mary Coors said that she had seen the kidnapper's face for weeks in her dreams and during the quiet of the day even. Uh, the face was always changing and a bit fuzzy, like vapor drifting in the darkness, and it would form the shape of a man's face that she didn't recognize. Other times it would shine in the sunlight distinctly, always dimming before drawing near, and it was only Ad's face, though, that she saw clearly in her nightmares, his eyes and his hair and the strain of a struggle, and she heard his words as he lay in a pool of blood. I love you, Mary. Tell the kids I love them. Goodbye, sweetheart. The FBI searched all kinds of mines and empty homes and abandoned places around there, and they found nothing. Ad's father, Joe, became very active in the investigation. They met at the Big House, which is what the Coors family called the main Coors home purchased by Adolph Coors back when he moved to Colorado, and it was a sprawling 22-room Queen Anne mansion. The money was, of course, prepared and ready to be handed over. The blood at the scene matched Ad's type of blood, and that's really the only thing that they could verify back then. The story was looking really grim, and the family sat in limbo, wondering why they hadn't been contacted for the ransom, and also fearing why they hadn't been contacted. They attempted to run the estate of Ad for months and run things as he might have been uh, seen fit for the Coors company, but everybody kind of tried to leave everything as he had left it. Um, then, eight months after the kidnapping, a hunter actually found a human skull, bones, and some clothing that Adolf Coors was wearing when he disappeared. The body was completely bones, completely skeletonized, no flesh or anything was visible. And here's a description from the Jefferson County um, Coroner's Office. As for the right scapula, there were two defects or holes in this scapula, which in my opinion were made by objects passing through it at a high velocity. The location of these defects was such that the resultant wounds of the chest would be of themselves sufficient to cause death. 
In all medical probability, Mr. Coors died of severe bleeding and shock from receiving two gunshot wounds to his right shoulder that penetrated his chest and right lung. So Mr. Coors was shot in the back. So does that sound any familiar to Joseph Corbett's M.O.? So the body, they did, in fact, verify it was Adolf Coors, obviously, and they found a pocket knife there with his initials on it, and they verified him through dental records. So the manhunt was now on for Joseph Corbett. Joe Corbett had planned this murder for months. He had staked out the route that Al drove so that he could catch him in an area that the least people would see him. He bought the typewriter and practiced ransom notes, the typewriter with the same slightly misplaced letter S. He bought the Mercury sedan a month before the kidnapping and stored it in an off-site garage so that no one in his apartment would know that he drove that kind of car. Corbett typed the ransom note and mailed it on the morning of the kidnapping before he had done anything, but the important part is that he mailed it before. So after um, it took a wrong direction, the note still arrived in the mail anyway. He put handcuffs and restraints into his car, and then he parked the car on the bridge and made it appear that his car had broken down. He lifted the trunk and the hood, and he stood by the car waiting for Coors to come up, who he knew was about to come up at a certain time. When Coors pulled up, he came out to investigate, and Corbett pulled a gun. But Coors did something that Joseph Corbett didn't expect. He fought back. Coors ran back to his car for cover, and Corbett shot Coors right into the back, killing him. In the struggle, Coors' glasses flew off into the river, and his baseball cap landed on the ground. Joe's Corbett, Joe Corbett's fedora also flew off and landed on the ground as well. Uh, Corbett drug the body to his car and then drove it to the area by Pike's Beak and dumped it. And he drove to Atlantic City then and tried to burn the car. And he tried to cover up his crimes at many different avenues, but he did a lot of stuff that basically led the FBI directly to him. The FBI put out a composite sketch of Corbett, and I'll have a picture up on Instagram. To me, he looks just about like every other dude from this era, but to some, he was distinctive. And eventually in Vancouver, British Columbia, Corbett was entering a cafe. He normally ordered a hamburger and Coke, but that day was his 32nd birthday. So he cheerily talked with the waitress and told her that it was his birthday and she brought him a piece of cherry pie with a candle in it and he blew it out. The morning of October 29th, 1960, the FBI had a tip that Corbett was driving a red Pontiac convertible and that he was, in fact, in Vancouver. His car was so conspicuous that they really had no trouble tracking it down to an apartment complex where the landlady said he was living under the name Wainwright after she verified a sketch and the car that he was driving, which was a red Pontiac convertible. Soon, a dozen plainclothes Vancouver detectives sworn the apartment complex along with multiple FBI agents, and they approached the room and pretended to be delivering a typewriter when knocking. When he entered the door, he had the same glasses on that he always wore, and they said, Joe Corbett, and he looked really resigned and said, yes, I'm your man, I give up. At first, he tried to resist being extradited to the U.S., but obviously that wouldn't fly, and his defense lawyers threw out a lot of motions um, and nothing really stuck. And to spare you all, I'm going to spare you guys all the trial drama because it just gets involved. 
Um, there was a suspected plot of putting plants on the grand jury, and Joe ended up submitting a plea of not guilty, leading to an intense trial. DA Ron Hardesty had a really gripping account of the morning that Coors was shot. He said, I'm sure Mr. Coors let out a groan when bullets tore into his back, penetrating his right shoulder blade and piercing his right lung, which likely collapsed. Blood sprayed everywhere, on the railing, on his car, even on the rocks along the creek bank with help from a gusting wind. He reached for the railing as he fell and twisted on the way down, landing on his back, groaning and gurgling as blood drained from his body, seeping into the gravel. A stunned Corbett looked around and didn't see anyone. He knelt beside the ashen-faced Coors, breathing fast and coughing, blood exiting his mouth as a one lung filled with blood. Corbett felt for a pulse and removed his pocket knife and cut the defenseless Coors tie, opened his shirt, and cut the shoulder strap of his undershirt to look at the wound, and there was no exit wound on his chest. By this time, Coors was falling unconscious from blood loss. The defense of Joe Corbett basically established that they believed there was no actual evidence directly against him, and they tried to assert that the case was purely circumstantial. And they particularly attacked the soil sample analysis, even though it did lead to the general area where the body was found. Because, as I said before, this was the first time that a soil sample analysis had been really determined by the FBI or used in a case. So it was 10.45 a.m. on a snowy morning of Tuesday, March 28, 1961, and... Corbett was convicted of kidnapping and murder and sentenced to life in prison. At the time, a person in Colorado could not get the death penalty unless there was a witness to the murder or a confession. So he was sentenced to hard labor in Canyon City. But Joe Corbett did eventually get out. Colorado changed the state law to require a parole hearing after 10 years for those serving life sentences and by 1978, Corbett had become the longest-serving inmate at Canyon City's state prison, which has since been beaten. Um, he was working in the infirmary there as a lab technician, so it wasn't quite hard labor. And the board approved his parole, and he was released. And everyone believed that Corbett was out for bloody revenge, and there was actually a lot of security around the Coors family homes and the home of the attorney that prosecuted against him but he didn't go after any of them. Corbett was only in Denver for about four hours to close a bank account, and he returned to San Francisco the same day, and he was arrested five days later and returned to prison. And it doesn't really say why he was arrested again, but it was something small because he was paroled a final time over a year later on December 12, 1980, at the age of 52, and he had only served 18 and a half years for murdering Ad Coors. He would live the rest of his life in Denver, only 10 miles from where he had murdered Ad Coors, and he said that he was going to get a degree and go work as a lab technician, but like most of his life, this was just all talk, and he ended up just becoming a driver for the Salvation Army. As an elderly man, Corbett said that he was haunted by whispers. There goes the man who killed Adolf Coors, and uh, I guess this got to him because Corbett shot and killed for a third and final time on August 24th, 2009. 
Suffering from terminal cancer, he took his own life by a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head while lying in his bedroom, 307, at the Royal Chateau Apartments in Denver. And that was it. I promised you all a ghost, and well, the old wooden bridge where Ad was shot and killed no longer exists, but some urban legends did claim that Ad Coors was decapitated and left under the bridge, and we know that that isn't true. From the time that the bridge did exist uh, after the murder, stories did emanate from that area that you could hear rasping, dying breaths of Adolf Coors and possibly even see a specter of him on the bridge. Today, the closest you can really get to that area, uh, you have to park on Turkey Creek Road and stand in the field, which is private property, so don't enter it, between US-285 and the exit ramp for C-470. What may be of more interest is the actual dump site for the body. As of five years ago, the site was located behind a trash dump just west of Sedalia, Colorado, down a steep slope that Joe Corbett dragged the body of Adolph Coors down. And there it is. Today's story. Um, uh, another historical murder here in a couple weeks. And um, if you want to go check out Colored Red Podcast on Instagram, there's going to be some pictures up for this case. And if you want to go check out my Patreon, that's patreon.com backslash Colored Red Podcast. And donate just $1 per month, you'll receive a card and sticker in the mail from me. And that's it. Until next time. <laughs>